We're continuing in our a series of walking through the Gospel of Mark. Today, chapter 12, beginning at the 18th verse. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of the word? Mark 12, beginning in the 18th verse, some Sadducees, the party that denies any possibility of resurrection, came up and asked, Teacher, Moses wrote that if a man dies and leaves a wife but no child, his brother is obligated to marry the widow and have children. Well, there were once seven brothers, and the first took a wife. He died childless. The second married her. He died and still no child. The same with the third. And all seven took their turn, but no child. Finally, the wife died. Now when they are raised at the resurrection, whose wife is she? All seven were her husband. And Jesus said, you're way off base. And here's why. One, you don't know your Bibles. Two, you don't know how God works. After the dead are raised, we're past the marriage business. As it is with the angels now, all our ecstasies and intimacies will be with God. The Sadducees didn't understand God's purpose in marriage. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word this morning, these marvelous scriptures of Mark's. Lord, we want to investigate and not be unknowing as the Sadducees' word, but rather to understand your invention of marriage, if you will. God, we want to be in lockstep with you in everything in our lives. So we pray, dear Lord, through the scriptures this morning, that we might better understand this business of marriage, and that's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Jesus' questioners didn't understand God's purpose in marriage. And if you look at the statistics, particularly in the United States, Canada, Western Europe, you'd have to say, we don't either. For a long time, the divorce rate has been more than 50%, but it wasn't until the late 1980s that it began to be that also for believers, for the Christian community. Dr. Dobson, marvelous man of God, longtime marriage counselor, Christian writer, speaker, some years ago he said this. He said he believed from his experience that only 2% of all marriages ever approach what God intended. And I say, we just don't understand God's purpose. In 1960, in the United States, 82% of all adults were married. Today that figure stands at 49%. Scary. Marriage as an institution is losing favor. 
And once again, I say, we just don't understand. People don't realize that they are possibly disregarding God's greatest gift on this earth. I want to speak about that today, if you'll give me that first slide. I want to speak about marriage as God intended and give each one of us some principles to look at. You know, the Sadducees didn't understand what the purpose of marriage was or they wouldn't have asked such a silly question. But you know, brothers and sisters, there's nothing we really do without purpose. Things we think about, things we determine, things we actually do, we have purpose. Before coming into the ministry, I ran a large public corporation headquartered out of Milwaukee. We had 28 plants around the world, thousands of employees. There was never any doubt as to what my purpose was. Earnings per share, we had to maximize earnings per share. That was it. I understood my purpose. And therefore, it makes sense when we talk about marriage this morning, that we begin right there, looking to the scriptures to understand why, what purpose, marriage. But I want to broaden that a bit. I want to say first that we ought to look at what purpose this world, what purpose this existence of ours. Why am I speaking to you this morning? Why are you here in attendance? It might surprise you where I get that answer. In the book of Ezekiel, chapter 20, you don't need to turn there. But God is speaking to the Israelites through the prophet. They've rebelled. It's the 6th century B.C. Babylon is at the gates. And God reminds them of their ugly past. And in the midst, he says this in reading from the message. He says, I, God, and listen to this, am in the business of making them holy. I, God, am in the business of making them holy. So why do we exist? Why is this world here, brothers and sisters? All with the same purpose. God is preparing for himself a people to be holy, to one day spend all of eternity with him. Unless we not understand holiness encompasses it all, the recognition that we are sinners, Confession of that sin, salvation, a determination to follow Jesus, to live our lives for Him. All of those are the particulars that we go through to achieve holiness. Holiness, brothers and sisters, is God's highest goal for each one of us. His purpose for our creation, the number one goal in our lives. So where does marriage fit in then? Well, isn't it interesting that God from the very start institutes marriage as a state within which most will one day be a part of? Statistics tell us that 97% of every person ever born will one day be married. But why marriage specifically, you see? I mean, Adam and Eve had not an earthly father or mother. We know Jesus had no earthly father. Clearly, marriage wasn't needed 
to procreate. God could have brought babies into the world in any number of ways. In the King James Version, Genesis tells us that Eve was to be a help meet. Adam also. I remember years ago reading that and being so struck by what is the help for. Clearly it wasn't simply that Eve would help Adam till the fields. And of course we have no doubt that Adam was not of much help when Eve was giving birth. You know, it wasn't for that purpose. Clearly, to me, they were to help each other, in fact, achieve the purpose for which they were there, that being holiness. You see, my, my sense is that we as believers ought to understand that there is a correlation, a close connection between God's highest purpose for us and marriage. They go hand in hand. They're two sides of the same coin. Brothers and sisters, marriage lived God's way is a ticket to holiness. I've said for many, many years that to me, marriage is my on-the-job training for the kingdom of God. For there's nothing that God asks of us or requires in Scripture that is not possible when marriage is lived God's way. But clearly, marriage today is seen as a secular institution, anything but what God intended. But a word for a moment. Uh, to the singles, those not married, possibly separated, divorced, maybe too young to be married. The scriptures make it quite clear that there is no state that does not contain a route to holiness. So even though my remarks most directly focus on marriage, if that's not where you are today, if it's not where you ever will be, it doesn't change the fact that there's a route to holiness for you. And recognizing that this is the state that most will be in, it is incredibly important that even if not in that state, that we understand what God's purpose is. I don't want to spend much time on the past, the sad history of marriages, either ours or the world's. We all know that as an institution, marriage is tragically broken. It's anything but what God's intended. Rather, what I want to do is spend time this morning talking about some solutions, some requirements, some applications, things from the Scripture that, in fact, make marriage work. Doris and I have been married 48 years just this past week, and Ralph and Trish, uh, a week yet to come. Pastor Hanson and Monica were last week. I mean, when Pastor was still here, we were kind of the triumvirate. All of us married 48 years, all of us in August of 1964. And Doris and I have a great marriage. I, uh, I'm nuts about this woman. We, uh, we got away to an incredibly romantic spot for four days last week, and I want to tell you, it was like a honeymoon all over again. Doris and I often say that if you think young love is something, and certainly it is, well then we say, wait till you've experienced 
old love. You want to talk about excitement and romance and everything else that God put in marriage? We've got it all right, sweetie. <laughs> I don't know if we're in Dobson's 2%. I really don't, but I know we're close. But it didn't come easy. It hasn't been without many trials and failures and all that kind of stuff. There's an old adage that says that if you get through the first seven years, you got it made. When we hear that, Doris and I say, don't believe it. Our 25th year was our toughest, as you'll shortly see. But we like to think that we've learned a lot. And I want to share with you this morning what we consider the three greatest lessons of our 48 years, things that have such a reference in Scripture, things that for us are the reason that we have what we have today. You can give us that next slide. I like to refer to them as the three P's of how marriage works God's way. Something's got to go, uh, something's got to come, and something's got to grow. I'll start with a story. We're going to step back. 1974, Doris and I were married 10 years. And um, a couple years before that, I'd been saved, amazingly, while watching a Billy Graham crusade on television. My kids always laugh about that because there's probably nobody that um, has less use for the television than myself, other than a few football games and a couple movies with Doris. I never, ever watch it. When our kids was growing up, we had a little black and white set. We put it up in the top of the closet in our bedroom. Remember that, sweetie? Uh, we just didn't want them to be um, uh, affected by uh, so much of the nonsense that comes on TV. <clears throat> but anyways, um, having been saved, um, we were beginning to experiment a little bit in uh, prayer and, and things of that nature. I mean, I'd have been a Christian all my life, but I hadn't really prayed much. Uh, Doris, much more so than, than me. And... Um, you know, those first uh, 10 years of marriage, they can be troublesome. I certainly was. Lots of um, difficulties, lots of adjustments, um, arguments, um, what have you. And um, <clears throat> I've said often that when I look back, 85% of the problem was me. It really was. And I don't say that intending to be humble at all. That's just the truth. I was raised by a tough German father from the old country. And um, I think a lot of what he was, he was a wonderful man, but a lot of what he was wasn't so wonderful. And it rubbed off. And Doris had to deal with that. And, and so most often, I was the cause of the problem. But there was this time, 1974, where I don't even remember the particular incident. Doris can't remember. But what I remember is this. That particular time... I was absolutely right. Okay? This time, this time there was no, um, you know, Pete wrong 85, but this time I was absolutely right, but Doris didn't see it that way. You know? So, um, after having our various arguments and all this and that, um, and me getting absolutely nowhere, we were living in Shorewood at the time, and we had a third story, and I retreated to the third story, to get alone with the Lord. I'm sure 
to attempt to get the Lord on my side, to get the Lord to agree with me, um, you know, and so forth. And I don't remember exactly what I said up there other than I'm sure I um, went over the particulars and I made sure the Lord understood where I stood, that this time I really was right. There's only twice in my life that I believe I've heard God speak to me. And this is what he said. He said, Pete, I don't care who's right. Your job is to love her. I don't care who's right. Your job is to love her. In the seventh chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul says much the same. Listen, marriage is not a place to stand up for your rights. Marriage is a decision to serve the other. Such a common thing in marriage, wanting to stand up for ourselves, to exert ourselves over our spouses. If I can say it this way, to win, often it's unconscious. We don't really mean it, but it becomes habitual. It's just the way we live. And it all goes by the same ugly word, selfishness. To me, absolutely, the number one scourge in marriage today. It's certainly been in my own life. But you know, it kind of comes natural. We brought along little Oliver today. He's only two years old, Rachel and Jason's youngest. He's in the nursery. Well, there's almost nobody more selfish than Oliver. When he wants something, he cries. He doesn't listen to reason. We had him at breakfast this morning. He wanted to eat what he wanted to eat. Don't you understand that? From a baby, our way of taking care of our children influences selfishness to start. And depending upon the, uh, the strength or the commitment that we have in parents, or maybe even our own background, uh, that may give way somewhat, maybe not. But the point is, that's how we begin life. So it's no wonder that often those vestiges find their way into our marriages. But the Bible tells us in Ephesians 5.25 that we as husbands are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. And although it doesn't say so clearly, the implication of the scriptures in 1 Peter and Colossians and 1 Corinthians is that the wives ought to do the same thing. What we're talking about is a sacrificial love, an unselfish love. But brothers and sisters, I want to tell you this morning that selfishness really is not the culprit. That simply arises out of something that's even uglier, and we don't like to talk about this word. We certainly don't like to ascribe it to ourselves. The sin of pride. Pride. What the Bible says goes before destruction and the root cause of all selfishness. Hence the first three P's. For marriage to work God's way, and you can give me that next slide, is that pride must go. Pride must go if marriage is to even begin to work as God intended. It's the first of the seven cardinal sins. Pride is evidenced by a high opinion of oneself, a conceit of sort. 
And to me, the best connection is if you look in the dictionary for the definition of pride, you find this, to indulge in self. Proverbs tells us that pride comes along with disgrace, that pride breeds only quarrels, that a man's pride brings him low. If you look throughout the Bible, you'll find also that pride deceives, that pride hardens, that pride makes you stubborn, that pride leads you to speak arrogantly, that pride, listen to this one, that pride acts as a restraint to your seeking God. And it's everywhere. Just before we left Florida to come back, Doris was watching a television program. And in that television program, this individual said that um, if a man would praise his wife 20 times a day, it would release serotonin in her brain and she would become more responsive as a wife. Well, wasn't about a week later and we were on the phone counseling a couple. And in the midst of that conversation, Doris says, you know, I want to speak to your husband. And he came on the phone and Doris related exactly what she had heard on this television program. And he says this, first thing out of his mind. He says, well, that would work good if my wife would do that for me too. You see, rather than simply accept what God, I mean, what Doris said, right away that old pride raises itself up. What about me? Which is really to say, which is really to say, I'm more important than you. You know, there's three things, if you want to talk about selfishness, three things that we find in marriages. The first two were spoken most eloquently about by William Law more than 300 years ago, one of the great Puritan preachers. Law spoke about the use of time and the use of money. The use of time and the use of money. Just think for a moment, those of you that are married or even that intend to be married, you think about your use of time and is your intent to give of your time to your spouse? Is that what's first on your mind? Or rather, do you tend to hold your time for yourself? Who gets first call on your time? For the better part of our marriage, I've had first call. I don't have it anymore. And how about your money? Who has first call on the money in your marriage? Think about that for a moment. Do you want it to be you? Is it you? Do you have a mindset that says, you know, I'd rather that money be sent on you, sweetie, than me? Or on you, Mr. Husband, than me? Is that your mindset? William Law said this, and I think this is such an incredible statement. He said, any man or woman who have conquered selfishness in the uses of their time, and the use of their money, have ascended the ladder of holiness greatly. Interesting choice of words, huh? You want selfishness to give way, you want pride to give way, I want to tell you, your time must give way in favor of your spouse. Your money must give way 
in favor of your spouse. And the third of those items, law didn't speak about it, but many others have. After finances, it is the cause of divorce, that being how mates use their sexual giftings. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Many gals don't like to hear this, some husbands, but Paul makes it quite clear. He says that our bodies belong to each other. In fact, he says clearly that the wife's body belongs to the husband and vice versa. But of course, we don't stop there, you see. The scriptures in other places make very clear what that belonging is all about. I have ownership of Doris's body if my use of that ownership is intensed by love. You see, it must be intensed by love. The intention must be love. Doris similarly has ownership, but the intention might be love, must be love. And so once again, you ask yourself the question there, where am I in that? Is my use of my sexual giftings with the intention of love towards my mate or not? So what do I do about this? As I move into my second P, I want to share with you what I have found over particularly the last 25 years is absolutely the best thing to help a husband or wife diffuse this matter of selfishness and pride. I didn't come to know about it from the standpoint of putting it into practice for many years after this experience in the first 10 years. So you want to build a godly marriage. Well, the first P is that pride must go. We'll go on, let me tell you another story. Now we're 18 years later, and um, Norm Whitney, an Assembly of God minister, comes to Portview on a Monday night, um, 1992. Doris and I are here, and in the process of that um, talk on prayer, Whitney says this, you will never be the man or woman God intended you to be unless you allow the Holy Spirit to birth in you the habit of daily getting alone with God. You will never be the man or woman God intended you to be unless you allow the Holy Spirit to birth in you the habit of getting alone with God. The word never absolutely brought me down. I had enough of God in me, had been saved for some number of years, had been in this church for three years, and the worst thing I could possibly think of was one day to leave this earth not having been what God put me here for. The next morning I started what is now more than a 20-year habit of getting alone with the Lord on a daily basis. I do it first thing in the morning. Now, this had nothing to do with the struggles that Doris and I were having in our marriage, you see. I didn't begin to pray for that purpose. I began to pray because I was so struck, I believe, by the Holy Spirit, by Norm Whitney's words. 
But what began to happen affected our marriage greatly. It wasn't but maybe a month in. This is February of 1992. And as I'm alone with the Lord in the morning, I began to be prompted to think about where I had gone wrong the previous day. You know, you get alone with the Lord and that's what happens. You can't hide your sin. You know, He loves us too much. He brings it front and center. And so I began to imagine that my days were all videotaped. And I'd come before the Lord in the morning and I'd say, Okay, Lord, let's rewind that tape and let's play that thing and don't spare me. I want to see it all. Never guessing that the majority of the stuff that was on my plate each day had to do with Doris and me. You see, when we're married, we spend such a majority of time with our spouse that there's all manner of possibility to go wrong to sin. And as that tape would play, I'd say, oh my goodness, look what I said. Look what I had an opportunity to do and didn't do. Every morning. And of course, I'd end up making my peace with God and to the extent it was necessary, I'd say, sweetie, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. I want to tell you something. Um, and you need to hear this. If you commit a serious sin, if you're married... You commit a serious sin, adultery, let's just say. You're not going to forget that. If you did that a week ago, you're going to remember. You're probably going to remember the day, the situation. You see, you don't have to be before the Lord every morning to remember that you committed that sin. But what if just one word was the wrong word? What if the look in the morning was a look of gruffness rather than a smile. The slight lie, whatever it might be. You see, you're not going to remember on a Friday that you weren't particularly loving at 10 o'clock in the morning on a Tuesday. But I want to tell you, if you get before the Lord every morning and you play that videotape, you index down 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, and that's the way I would do it. I'd think, okay, I'd go through that day. And I'd think, what happened? And it wasn't only Doris on my plate, there was other things, but the preponderance of things were about our marriage. In fact, Doris remembers so well. It was six months in. And I told her one morning, I said, you know, I said to the Lord this morning, Lord, when is there going to be a day when there's nothing on my plate about Doris? Can't I ever have a perfect day? Took a long time. Uh, Doris, um, after some number of years doing this, and I've heard her say this often, um, she'll be in conversation with somebody and she'll say, you know, um, if Pete does uh, does something that just didn't write, or if he isn't, uh, you know, whatever, she says, you know, I just wait. Because I know he's going to be before the Lord the next morning. And the Lord is much better 
at talking to him about that stuff than I am. <laughs> right, sweetie? I want to tell you, brothers and sisters, those of you married, and, and really those not married, you want to move towards having your marriage right. You get with the Lord every day. I mean, it's ironclad. Because if not, one of two things is going to happen. You might start out praying, well, if you're going to be rebellious and not listen to what the Lord says about what's going on between you and your mate, well, you'll stop praying. And nobody's going to go and just get abused every morning and not do anything about it. But I can assure you this. If you get before the Lord every day, once again, because He loves us so, He will make clear to you exactly where your sin is, where your failings are. And that's how we get better. We don't get better if we don't know. We have to know, then we can get better. So you want your marriage to be as God intended. First of all, pride has got to go. And the second one, you can bring that next slide up. Prayer must come. Must. At least in my 69 years, I've not seen anything that works like that. And I'll tell you, before 1992, I tried many, many, many things. All without success. Brother Mitch indicated that we've got some classes scheduled for the fall. Uh, Doris and I and Mark and Elizabeth Fisher are going to teach a 14-week uh, class on marriage. We call it the Love and Respect uh, class. Um, we're utilizing uh, Egrich's book, Love and Respect, which is by far the finest text on marriage that we've already ever uh, come across, and Doris and I have more than a hundred volumes in our library, uh, and we're going to um, work diligently through the scriptures over a 14-week period. We're going to use a, a videotape uh, series. We'll have maybe 20 minutes of uh, video and then discussions, and it's a class, once again, like um, as I speak this morning, uh, for couples, for husbands or wives alone, for those that have been separated or divorced, those that have an interest in being married one day, even the young that simply want to know more about marriage. Uh, it is really geared to the whole uh, a gamut simply because, as I said earlier, 97% of all will one day be married. Uh, so if you um, uh, have any sense as I speak this morning that you're not, marriage is not absolutely as God intended, I want to encourage you to come and we'll spend these 14 weeks together and try to get on that page. So pride must go, prayer must come, and now the third P, if you'll show us that slide, passion must grow. Now it's not what you think. It's not what you think. One last story. We're in our 25th year. That was the tough year. Doris and I had come to Portview maybe four or five months earlier. And all the years of my abuse, mainly verbal, never physical, had weighed on Doris. We had six children, and she simply couldn't handle it anymore and had an emotional breakdown. 
ended up in Rogers Hospital out in Oconomowoc for a four-week period of time. And I was absolutely devastated. I took her out there. I knew that the main problem was me. But I didn't know what to do. I couldn't talk to Doris for the first eight days. And then in that conversation, Doris said this to me. She said, I've decided that the single most important thing for me is I've got to get healthy. I'm not sure that'll include you. I was stunned, devastated, brought down. I've been nuts about this woman for 27 years, but I didn't know how to be married God's way. I tell you, a few of you were here in this church back then, and although I was new, I was here every time the door was open. Both services on Sunday, Wednesday night, and any other uh, things that were going on, I was absolutely desperate for God. Two weeks in, I went out to the hospital and met with Doris and the doctor that was uh, treating her. And he said this, that it believed far and about that the cause of this breakdown was that for years and years and years I had been discounting her. Boy, that's an ugly word. Discounting her. You see, that means there's no partnership whatsoever. What that means is that you, me, think that I always know better. So that no matter what she would say, I would discount it. Doris came home, and I was absolutely determined to change things. I had lived at this church for four weeks, counseled with Pastor Hansen, and I was determined that things had to change. And I remembered something that had happened to me back in sixth grade. When I was in grammar school, I had ten brothers and sisters, and we once upon a time, um, there was one of us in each of the eight grades. And my brother Bob and I, he was one year older, we were notorious bad spellers. We couldn't spell anything. And every month they'd give us this uh, examination of 50 words. And we were always down in the low 30s. And the, the, the bright kids were in the high 40s, sometimes they'd get 50. And for some reason, the two of us decided, we made a pact that we were going to change things. And over a couple months, we just drilled each other because they had a book of thousands of words and the tests were always taken from those books. We studied and drilled and, and on and on and on and on and on. And four or five months later, my brother Bob and I were at the top. In fact, the teacher told my mom she thought maybe we were cheating, but she couldn't figure it out. They actually called my brother Bob in and they examined him verbally. And he got every single word right. You see, I had that background, and I knew that with determination and with the scriptures that I could beat this thing. And I remember in 1989 studying the scriptures, going through Genesis, Abraham and Sarah and Jacob and Rachel, Isaac, Jacob and Rebecca, Isaac and Rachel and David and 
Hosea and Gomer and Ezekiel and Proverbs and Psalms and Paul and 1 Corinthians and Colossians and on and on and on and on. I was determined to learn what it was that made marriage work. Doris and I began a habit that we continue to this day. We love to read to each other. In fact, um, while we were away, uh, we keep track of it, and I figured out over the last five years, Doris and I have read together 140 books. That's a lot of time spent reading. Now, not all those are marriage books by any means, but um, we began reading marriage books and filling our library with that kind of thing and just being determined to change things. In a word... I had developed a passion for marriage, particularly a passion for our marriage, a passion for the institution of marriage, a passion for this incredible invention that by and large we don't understand even in the Christian world. Brothers and sisters, you want your marriage to be as God intended. Pride has got to go. There's no question about it. No ifs, ands, or buts. Prayer has got to come unless you've got a way that I've never stumbled upon that also works. I don't think there is one. And finally, you've got to have a passion for it. You've got to have a passion for it. You know, you know in your own lives that if you have a passion for something, you do well. Pastor Mark has a passion for Suzanne and fishing. <laughs> You've got to have a passion. It's got to be in your blood. I used to have all kinds of avocations. I have no avocation that even begins to top being alone with Doris. Now, Pastor Pete, is that because you've sacrificed that? I mean, what a man. No, that isn't because I've sacrificed that at all. It's because by and by, as I've attempted to live my marriage as God intended, I've learned something. That there's no avocation. That's as much fun and gives me the pleasure that just being with Doris does. Early in our marriage, you couldn't pull me away from a Notre Dame game. Not anymore. I watch a few of the games every year, but if there's a chance to do something with Doris, that's what I do. You see, you don't have to decide that. You don't have to sacrifice. I want to tell you, it comes natural if you simply determine to begin doing things God's way. Isn't it interesting that in the Scripture, when God tries to give us a mirror, a comparison to the love that Christ has for the church? Well, what is it? It's what a man has for his wife. You know, God is love, and the Scriptures tell us that just below the love that He has for us is the love that a man has for his wife. So how can anything else top that? I'm going to close just with a few things. Dag Hammarskjöld once said, Secretary General of the United Nations, 
back in the late 40s and early 50s, he said this, and listen carefully. He said it is more noble to give yourself completely to one individual than it is to labor diligently for the salvation of the masses. It is more noble to give yourselves completely to one individual than to labor diligently for the salvation of the masses. You know, many Christians would hear that and say, that's blasphemy. Oh no, you see, Brother Hammersfield understood something. That when you give yourselves completely to one individual, pride must go. Prayer must come. And passion must grow. And then... You'll be useful mightily for the masses. The second thing, I have three things in closing, is simply this. I used to think it was so difficult as a man to love as I knew the scriptures called me to. But I made a tragic mistake. For years I thought that Doris was enough. No human person is enough to move us to love as God would have us love. But for Jesus, for Jesus, you can do it. I love Doris the way I do for Jesus' sake. She's an incredible woman. She's beautiful, she's godly, she's a wonderful mother, but that's not enough for me to love her as God calls me to love her. But for Jesus. And then finally this. I want to tell you that there is no high like the high of a marriage lived God's way. But there's a kicker. There's a kicker. You don't get to see that. You don't get to understand that. Unless you first jump in by faith. And it's only by and by that you say, oh my goodness. I." You see, it'd be kind of like trying to tell a youngster about going to Disney World down in Florida. You see, no amount of conversation, no collection of pictures will do it. You simply can't put it across, but put them on Main Street in Orlando. And he gets it. That's what it's like in marriage, you see. What I'm speaking to you about this morning, if you want that, Well, you don't get it tomorrow just because you listened to Pastor Pete and made a resolve. Oh, no. You take the words of Scripture and you say, God, by your grace, help me to do that. And then you step into it. And day by day, week by week, month by month, yes, year by year, you be resolute. I never knew it could be that way. You see? 
our last 10 years have been incredible. Did you feel this last week like we just got married, sweetie, didn't you? You see? It's only in faith that we step in, determining to do it God's way, that then we get all that God promises. Stand with me, please. I said to Pastor Mark a few weeks ago, I said, you know, if we'd have a movement in our church right here at Portview Christian, where many of our marriages would take a distinct turn towards all that God intends, what kind of a church would we have then? I'll tell you, brothers and sisters, we'd have a church like none other. If you got any weaknesses whatsoever, if anything that I've said here this morning stirs your heart, you join us when we start that 14-week class. I really believe God has something special for this church, and it's not that Doris and I and Mark and Liz are anything special, but the scriptures of which I speak this morning are special. And we'll delve in in much, much more detail during that period of time, so... You sign up and join us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, you know how I love being married. You know how I treasure this incredible institution, this invention. And you know, Lord, how much I have a passion for our children these grandchildren, our family, that one day they'll have in part or in whole what Doris and I have. God, my prayer is for this congregation, for all here, those that will hear this on the web, those that will hear it from others, those that will listen by desk, whoever. God, that we have a movement of change in this church. I don't believe we're any different than any other church Churches far and wide have fallen down in this area. But we need to be resurrected. And you're the only resurrection. Oh God, I pray over this people now. God, even as I pray that you will move amongst them. That you will impart grace. Oh God, that the passion will begin to rise up in each and every one of them. And God, for those not yet married, but those determining to be married, God, that they'll, with all their hearts, want to do it your way. God, save them the many years of lost time attempting to do it man's way, their way, the selfish way. Oh, Jesus. What a gift that would be.